Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all of you. Um, if you have a child up to grade three, they can be dismissed to an age-appropriate uh, service. Um, if you'd like your children to remain, they are welcome to do so. Uh, um, so I'm Ben Parziali, as uh, Pastor Kurt had, had mentioned. Um, I've been here for a few years with, with Berean Baptist Church. I think I mo- know most all of you, um, primarily through uh, serving at Bistro and things of that nature. Um, but <clears throat> uh, my time, many times on Sunday mornings, is spent downstairs teaching some of the younger ones, ages uh, or grades third grade through sixth grade. So uh, being up here this morning is a little bit new for me, as you can imagine. Um, But our sermon today is not going to be a typical sermon in that we're going to go through a particular passage, okay? Um, So I want to be very upfront with that. Um, You know, Pastor Kurt had asked me um, to preach this morning, and I'm very honored to do so. And I'm I'm very glad to be a part of this church, so thank you. Um, But let's start uh, this morning with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you that you're a glorious Savior. All glory be to Christ. Lord, we ask that you would open your word this morning to us. Lord, may we be amazed at what Christ has done for us. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So I want to start. I don't think any of the things I'm going to go over is going to be necessarily new to most of you. Um, But it is the new year, right? It's 2020. And don't worry, this is not going to be a sermon on New Year's resolutions about how to lose weight or whatever the case might be, whatever your New Year's resolutions are. but I want to stir you up as a way of reminder, as it says in Second Peter chapter 3. And I want to start by saying, I'm just stating the obvious, I think, but our faith is not merely based upon keeping a set of rules. Right? It's not adhering to moral principles, nor believing or accepting certain facts as being true, or obeying certain commands. Right? Our faith does involve those things, but that is not our faith. Right? Our faith is not rooted in those things. If our faith is, is rooted upon or founded upon, based upon keeping certain rules or following some certain tradition or accepting certain pieces of information, then our faith will be empty, and we in return are going to be empty. As Christians, our faith is based upon one thing and one thing only. Right? It's the person of Jesus Christ with an absolute trust and surrender to him. It is a relationship with Jesus by which we are brought near to God. And our hope and faith is placed entirely upon Jesus. And he is to be everything to us. So, in teaching today, there's one topic that we cannot talk enough about. And it's about Jesus Christ himself. Right? He's the object, he's the foundation, the author, the finisher of our faith, and our faith rests entirely, entirely upon him. So with that being said, we're going to talk about some of the names and titles that are ascribed to Christ in the Scripture and why they're important. Um, and you're going to have to forgive me, because at this situation in my life, I have some, a few young ones, still quite young, and I have a five-year-old that likes to ask what do words mean? And perhaps some of you that have young ones get some of the same questions, right? So you're, you're, you're having to be somewhat of a dictionary, right? And I think the other day, my daughter, uh, Anna, who's five, says, what does maybe mean? Possibly, I, you know, <laughs> neither yes nor no, okay? So um, I apologize, you're kind of held captive to that because that's, that's my position in life right now is, is training and teaching little ones and sometimes getting requests and questions about what do certain things mean? When I hear this word, what does it mean? 
So, with that being said, we see in Scripture that Scripture ascribes multiple, numerous names and titles to Jesus. Cruden's Concordance, which was created by Alexander Cruden, was first published in 1737. Okay? And he had identified that there were around 198 different names and or titles given to the person of Christ throughout Scripture. I never knew that, right? We read, we read Scripture, right? We read the New Testament, we see titles or, 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 or things given to, ascribed to Christ, but 198 of them is what he counted. And you're familiar probably with a good number of these names, right? So I'm not going to give you all 198, that might take up all of our time here. And my son, uh, one of my sons specifically asked me, don't go as long as Pastor Kurt today. Okay? So there's no guarantee. So if we go through all 198 names, we might be here a while, right? But with that being said, right, here are some of the names, right? We, we see it in Scripture, right? Lord, right? Son of God, Son of Man, Savior, Master, Lion of Judah, the son of David, Lamb of God, Man of Sorrows, Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life, the Vine, Last Adam, New Adam, the Bridegroom, the Bread of Life, the Great High Priest, right? And the list goes on, right? There's just, there's a multitude of names that I don't know all 198 of them, but there's a lot, right? And those are just a few. So I want to go over the meaning of some different names that we see ascribed to Jesus in Scripture. And what I want to first start out with is, what does the name Jesus mean? And I think we forget or miss this sometimes, and we just read the name Jesus and just pass right through it. right? And this might be a review, but I want it to be a helpful reminder. So, when we read the Bible, right, especially in the Old Testament, names have meanings. Right? Many times people are given names that describe personal characteristics, right? or it's in a fulfillment to a specific prophecy or out of praise to God. Right? We think about the names like Moses. Think of Jacob, Esau. Right? Esau was born a really hairy baby, a red hairy baby. Right? So he's given the name Esau. Right? So names have meanings. Right? Think of Samuel. Right? Think of John the Baptist. All right, so what does the name, or I guess I should say, does the name Jesus bear any significance at all, that name specifically? Yes, it most definitely does. All right, so what does it mean? All right, Jesus, right, we see the name Jesus. It's a transliteration from the Greek of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or as we would say today, Joshua. Okay, the name Joshua, or Jesus, means Yahweh or Jehovah saves, right? Or Jehovah is salvation. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Hopefully I haven't lost anybody yet, okay? Now, when we see the term Yahweh or Jehovah, right, is the Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament. So when we read the name Jesus, we are saying, or its literal meaning is God saves, or God is salvation. All right, let's move on. Now, we just celebrated Christmas, right? And it is fresh in our minds, but remember the angel's announcement of Christ's coming birth to Mary and Joseph, right? We remember that. We just celebrated it. Luke 1.31, and behold, right, this is the angel speaking to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Right? God saves. We see it also in Matthew. Right? Matthew gives us a little bit more information. He speaks, the angel is now speaking to Joseph. And she, speaking of Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Right? For he will save his people from his sins. So, I don't mean to belabor the point, but I'm going to belabor some points today, okay? We see that before Jesus was ever born, 
his name was foretold to Mary and Joseph as to what his name would be, right? Mary and Joseph didn't give birth to Jesus and just say, yeah, we like the name Jesus, right? No, it was clearly foretold what his name would be. We know right now that Jesus' name means God saves or God is salvation. So Matthew gives us the specific or gives us more details that Jesus is the appointed person by God to save people from their sins. I think that's very basic and foundational, right? But I don't want us to miss that when you read the name Jesus throughout the scripture, it is shouting out to you, God saves, God saves. This is the one that God has sent to save. Jesus, 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 right? That, that is the purpose, that is the whole point when we read the scripture. All right, so let's go to the next name, all right? This one is very common, right? We, we see it a lot in scripture, all right? Christ, what does the name Christ mean, all right? We see that throughout the New Testament many times. Um, in case some of you don't know, Christ is not Jesus's last name, Okay? That wasn't just his last name. It was a title, right? The name, or the title Christ, is from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. Right? And Christos is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah also means anointed or anointed one. Right? This is of huge importance, right? We're not Jews, but the Jews understood this. In the Old Testament, it regularly speaks of a coming Messiah or an anointed one. And the Jews understood that there was only one anointed one, and they were waiting and looking for that one person, right? And, and very early on in the Gospels, Jesus is declared to be Christ. Immediately on, okay? So let's look at that real quick. All right. Uh, as I said, Christ means the anointed one. And Matthew in Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, there's our word, was as follows. Right? Luke tells us, as the angels declare to the shepherds in Luke 2.11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Christ, there's our word, the anointed one, the Lord. So right at the time of Jesus' birth, the, name, the angels are announcing that the Christ has come. The anointed one is here. Right? And one more text. Oh, let me go back. Right, Luke 2.26. Simeon is waiting in the temple. Right, he's been, it's, been re, it's been revealed that he would see the Lord's Christ, and it says this. And it had been revealed to him, speaking of Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Right, so... Immediately on, at the birth of Christ, at the announcement of his coming, Jesus is also identified as Christ, right? He's given the title of Christ, the Anointed One. Jesus himself also warns his followers that many will say that they are the Christ, right? Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in whose name? My name, right, saying, I am the Christ, the anointed one, and will deceive many. Okay, so Jesus himself, in his, in his ministry, warns us as followers, that, hey, listen, there's going to be a lot of people that they're going to say that they're the anointed one, and they are not. I am the anointed one, right? And Jesus says that there can only be one anointed one, hence the term anointed one. Right? I think hopefully that's clear. There can only be one anointed one, and it's him. In addition, the Jews, as I said before, were looking for one specific person. One specific person. So, to wrap this up on the first introductory part, right, about Jesus. Jesus means God saves, right, for your notes, if you're following along. And Christ means anointed one. All right. And I want to continue on on three specific titles today that speak of Jesus in the New Testament. Right? And I, want, I want to put focus on three, and I think they're absolutely amazing, and I hope you find the same. The three that we're going to talk about today is Savior, Lamb of God, and Surety. So 
Number one, Jesus is the Savior. The word Savior in the New Testament appears about 24 times, with most of those instances referring to the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? In the New Testament, the word Savior only refers to either Jesus or God. There's no other indication of the term Savior when we read the term Savior in the New Testament that they're speaking of anyone else. It is always speaking in reference to God, and and in most circumstances, it's specifically referencing the person of Jesus Christ. We just read one example, so let's reread it. The angels come to the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 11, and they say that Christ is the Lord, but they also say what? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 1 John 4.14, John writes, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. So what does Savior mean? What does this word Savior mean? We see it a lot. Matter of fact, we many times reference Christ as being our Savior. Okay? Savior means rescuer or deliverer, or literally one who saves. Now, I know that might not sound earth-shattering right now. Okay? I'm just giving a definition. It's like Webster's up here. What's this word mean? This is what it means. Okay? While Jesus was given the title of Savior, right? We see that in Scripture. This title is directly connected to his work and mission of saving sinners, okay? So Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man, right, his mission on earth, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Paul also declares Jesus' work as Savior, he says in First uh, Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy saying, deserving of a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Okay? So Jesus is given the title of Savior. He's given the work of saving. I may be saying... Uh, I I, I want to give you a good example to convey this, and I don't mean to just state the obvious, right? A Savior saves. I think that's clear. But here's here's the image that I want to try to convey or the example I want to give to you when we think of the term Savior. Okay? I think most of us have seen an action movie where you've got good guys and bad guys, right? And in that action movie, there's a lot of them, um, somebody's taken hostage, The bad guys somehow get a hostage, right? And it's the good guy's duty to deliver the hostage. And this hostage is usually, for whatever reason, tied down to a chair or locked away in some sort of abandoned building or or whatnot, right? And that hostage is just awaiting their own destruction, right? They're awaiting whatever their captor is going to do. And then throughout the movie, just like all good movies, a hero comes in, at the perfect time, defeats the enemy, and then rescues the hostage. Okay? It's a very, I think, if you've watched action movies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's probably a number of them that you can, that come to mind right now. But in a similar way, right, each of us has been bound, locked away, but with our own sin, with no way of escaping, and been taken captive by Satan. There's no possible way for us to release ourselves, right? We're the hostage unless a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer comes who is powerful enough to defeat our captor and save us from our impending destruction, right? This savior is Jesus and only Jesus, right? So if we were locked away, right, and you had no one can hear you, no one, you're just waiting for your own destruction to take place, Right? You would look for what? A savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. That is Jesus, right? We are bound by our sin, right? Satan holds us captive, and a one stronger than Satan must come in, right? To defeat Satan and free us of our sin, free us 
right, from our, from our entanglements and bondage to sin. So, for us to doubt or to think that Christ is not willing nor capable or unable or incompetent to save us is slandering his own name. Slandering his own name. It's defaming his own character and it's questioning the work that he came to complete. Think about that. It is an utter mockery and an insult for us to question whether or not Christ can save someone. And I think we all have sometimes been there that some person just seems so lost and so far out, and then we go, there's no way that God could save them. There's no way that Christ could save them. Well, when we say that, we're mocking Jesus because his whole purpose, his whole work was to save. Um, I guess another point, uh, hopefully this is helpful. If you ever witness to someone and they want to say to you that Jesus is a good moral teacher, we need to refute that claim. We need to refute that ideology because they haven't read the New Testament. Right? Multiple occasions, 24 times, right? Jesus is specifically identified as the Savior. He's identified as the one who saves. So don't let someone tell you that Jesus was a good moral teacher because he wasn't. That was not the work he came to do. He was not the, the work that he came to do was not to teach. The work that he came to do was to save. Um, Hebrews 7.25, right? says, therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the, other, to the uttermost, or completely, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's not limited. He's not weak in his ability to save. Right? And we also know that from the gospel Right, we know that from Romans 1, where Paul says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So I say all that to say this. If any of you here are not a Christian, then today is the day for salvation. Jesus Christ is the powerful Savior, and he's the only one who can save you. And what must you do to be saved? Right? Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then there's a second point to that, of Christ being our Savior is, perhaps some of you, like me, at one point in time, doubt your salvation and question whether or not you are really saved. It happens. It happens to believers. If so, then perhaps you've just may, may have forgotten the simplicity of the gospel. Right? Do not seek to settle your salvation on your own feelings or seek some sign or powerful or dream or powerful impulse right if you're seeking a sign the sign's not going to save you your salvation has already been settled upon the reality that Jesus Christ is the savior all that all that we have to do is trust him right we cast all of our faith upon him because that's what he says that he'll do is save that's what he came to do is to save so hopefully that's an encouragement to you if you're struggling with your salvation don't lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus came to save. That's what he did. That's what he does. All right, so Savior, right? We talked about this means rescuer, deliverer. So let's move on to the second one. Jesus is the Lamb of God. All right, Jesus was referred to the Lamb of God or to the Lamb multiple times in the New Testament. The book of Revelation has numerous, numerous instances where the title of Lamb is ascribed to Jesus. But there's one, there's one particular passage I want to mention. Okay? And that's in John 1. John 1. John 1, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus does not just save us from our sins. Right? He takes them away. That's glorious. He just doesn't save us. He completely removes it. 
takes it out of the way. We understand that in the, the, from the Old Testament sacrificial system, right, it was ordained by God and that the sacrifice of unblemished lambs and goats and bulls was required as a means to purify the offender from their sin. Right, that's what the Old Testament talked about. And we're not going to go into those Old Testament passages, right? But Hebrews 9 tells us that in according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Right? There's no remission of sins. There can be no cleansing, no taking away, no forgiveness, no sending back. Right? Now, we also understand from the Old Testament that the sacrificial system was only a shadow, right? an image of the things to come, and that the sacrificial system could never, ever fully take away sins. And this is just so wondrous, folks. If I, I hope I'm not being boring right now because this is so wondrous, right? Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. So he's saying, listen, if the Old Testament way of sacrificing animals could have taken away sins, then we, you just would have done it one time, right? And it wouldn't have been a problem. But no, they have to offer them continually year by year, right? Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. And then, he, and then the writer says, For it is not possible or it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4 and 5, right? So the Old Testament could not take away sin. Moving forward to Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 12. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which what? can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Okay? The blood of bulls and goats, as we just read, can never purify or take away sins. The writer is very clear about that. These sacrifices only covered the sin. Right? Only covered it, so you didn't have to look at it as much. You didn't have to be as mindful of it. Okay, now, um, we just celebrated Christmas. I just said that a, couple, a few minutes ago, right? But um, in celebrating Christmas, our family has a few family traditions, and I think this will help get the message across about how Christ has taken away sins and why the sacrificial system was only a means of covering in our family, one of our family traditions is, um, ever since I was a young, a young kid, um, was to have an Italian meal on Christmas Eve. We're Italian family, we have Italian meal. Reminded of our heritage, right? Reminded of our uh, background. Um, and in this meal, we have some very traditional Italian entrees. Lasagna, and meatballs, and Italian sausage, and just all the good stuff, right? sometimes an Italian dessert. And as you can imagine, there's lots and lots of red pasta sauce that comes with those entrees or comes with those dishes. And as you can imagine, right, red pasta sauce in conjunction with children tend to make what? Quite a mess, right? And now my mother, who uh, surprisingly, my parents are surprisingly here today, um, can attest to this. Uh, she puts out a very nice linen tablecloth, okay, and um, it isn't white, it isn't white, but uh, it's like an ivory or like a cream color, okay. And uh, this tablecloth, right, is used where this is where we eat the fantastic Italian meal, and this and this tablecloth is not immune to getting the red sauce on it no matter how hard we try, or no, no matter how hard my mom tries, <laughs> all right? There's usually a handful of, of spills and stains all over the tablecloth by the time the meal is done. 
think you guys get that. All right. Now, our family, this is just a side note. Our family does not do this, okay? Or I haven't seen them do this. But I've heard of other families doing this, and perhaps yours do this as well. Right? While eating a meal, a well-prepared meal at a night, on a nice tablecloth, if somebody spills something, one may be inclined to cover the spill or the stain with a napkin or a towel right? for the duration of the meal so you don't have to look at it. Right? You're not, you don't have to be reminded of it. I just, just had this great, wonderful meal set before me, and ooh, I just spilt the gravy. I don't want to really look at that because this is such a nice setup of a meal. I'm just going to put a napkin right over top of it right? and hide or cover the spill right? so that you can enjoy the meal. That is the best analogy I can use for the Old Testament system of sacrifice, right? It's the napkin. The Old Testament system of sacrifice is the napkin. It just covered the sin. Just covered it enough so you didn't have to really look at it. Now, my mom, after every Christmas Eve meal, takes what? takes the linen tablecloth and washes it clean. So much so that you can never see the previous stains nor ever, ever, ever again be reminded of them of what happened on that tablecloth. And that is Christ, right? The Old Testament just puts a napkin over top of it. Christ comes in and washes it clean. He washes us entirely clean. There's no more reminder of sin. There's no more previous stains of sin. And that is beautiful, that is beautiful. I hope that's helpful to you all, right? Blood of bulls and goats can't do it. Only Christ can, right? And which is why he's declared to be the Lamb of God, because he takes away, takes away the sins of the world, right? Takes away all of our sin. All right, number three, uh, last one. And I might be done early, Jacob, so there you have it. Um, <laughs> um, Jesus is the surety. Jesus is the surety. This one's a little bit, mo- a little bit more obscure because we don't really use this term, but it is just most amazing. And I don't know that I can do, do justice, but I want to hopefully convey what surety means and the gloriousness of this term when we apply it to Christ. It comes from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A surety of a better covenant. Now, the New King James uses the term surety. The New American Standard Version uses the word guarantee instead of surety. But I want just to expound for a moment on this title and just the absolute phenomenon this when we talk when we apply it to Christ All right we don't, we don't use the term surety in our modern day Matter of fact if somebody asked me what a surety was a few years ago I would not I would not be able to tell you because I, I don't know what that term means because I've never used that word before okay but we have some instances in the Old Testament of a surety right and uh, most of them are warnings from Proverbs. Let's, let's read those real quick, okay? Proverbs 17, 18, it says, A man devoid of understanding shakes his hand in a pledge and becomes surety, that's our word, for his friend. Proverbs twenty two twenty six 26, it says, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. Right? There's our word. And uh, Proverbs 6, 6 1. He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but he who hates being surety is secure. All right, so what does surety mean? We'll get to that. All right, these passages, the term surety implies one being a guarantee, right? Same, uh, very similar word, or cosigner is what we would use in our modern day vernacular of another's debt, right? So don't don't co-sign. Don't be the guarantee for someone else's debt. Matter of fact, Scripture indicates, according to Proverbs, that being a surety is for another's unwise. And um, 
As a side note, I would also say I'd strongly encourage you don't ever be a surety for anyone or a cosigner for anyone. Um, it, I think the, the word from Proverbs is clear, is clear. It's borderline foolishness and it does have consequences. You will end up paying the debt. If you cosign on a loan for someone, you're accepting their responsibility of the debt if they default or if they fail to pay. Right? And the reason for the cosign. I don't, I don't loan anybody money because I'm not in the, in the financial business of loaning money, but the reason for the cosign is because the lender has little confidence or, or small confidence in the borrower, borrower's ability to pay. That's why they want a cosigner. They want a backstop. They want a guarantee that somebody else can pay this debt because I don't know that you can. Okay, so you may be wondering, how does this apply? And this is applies so beautifully. Take another side route real quick, okay? I am in the insurance business. And most of you probably find insurance to be very boring. Rightfully so. Most, I think the average person sees insurance as boring, and I would agree, okay? But there are insurance companies out there that sell a product that is called a surety bond. And maybe you've heard that term before, surety bond. Some of you know, might know what they are, and I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in surety bonds, okay? I don't sell them. I don't underwrite them. But I do have a little bit of understanding about how they work, okay? And my explanation is going to be very, very elementary, okay? But I, hopefully it will get the job done. All right. With insurance, all right, I'm going to go into some insurance language here. With insurance, there is an expectation of loss. Okay? There's expected to be a loss. In other words, you pay a premium, the insurance company says, here's the defined uh, ramifications that if this happens, we will pay. Right? So there's an expectation of loss, meaning that a claim is going to be paid. And that's what insurance is for. Right? I think we get that because we, we have cars and we have houses and we have to have insurance. Now, with surety bonds, it's the reverse. There is no expectation, or the surety has no expectation, the guarantee has no expectation of payment. They don't want to pay. They don't expect to pay. There's not an expectation to pay, okay? All right, I apologize. If you think this is a yawn, uh, wake up, because this is where it gets good, okay? All right. I'm sorry, this is, this is like energizing folks, okay? Um, insurance, no, it's not insurance, all right? But as I said, the surety does not expect to pay. In the business world, in our daily world, surety does not expect to pay anything, okay? All right, a surety bond, let's see if we can get there here, all right? A surety bond has three parties. There are three parties involved, okay? Now, a typical contract, is usually just between two parties. It's an agreement or a promise. So when you hear contract, just think agreement or promise or maybe even the word covenant, right? It's a contract between two. That's a normal contract. A surety bond is a contract between, between three different parties, okay? The first party is the obligee, okay? If you, if you want to take notes, this might be a good time to take notes because I'm going to use some weird words here, okay? The obligee is the party to whom the payment of debt or performance is due. It's very important, okay? So the obligee is owed something. That's who the obligee is. They're ob something is obligated to them. They're owed something. The principal, number, the second party involved, the principal is the primary party responsible for the debt or the performance. In other words, the principal is contractually obligated pay or owe something to the obligee, right? It's either they have to perform a duty or they have to pay a debt, okay? That's typically what it is. But they have to pay it to the obligee. That's the responsibility. Now, the surety, okay? The surety is the party who promises or guarantees to pay the obligee in the event that the principal defaults and is unable to perform the obligation. You follow me here? Right? We've got three words that we don't use on our normally every day. Obligee, they're owed something. Something is due them. 
a debt or a performance of work. Principle, right? They owe the obligee, a debt or performance of work. They're the one that owes. So they're the, the loaner, so to speak, or the, the, the borrower. The surety is the one who agrees to pay on behalf of the principal if the principal defaults and cannot pay. Now, the surety bond, right, that term surety bond, is just the contract or promise of the surety to pay the debt or perform the obligation if, right, to perform, to perform, I'm sorry, to perform the obligation to the obligee if the principal defaults. So the three parties come together and they make this contract. That contract is called the surety bond, okay? And those are the three parts of it. Someone is owed something, someone owes something, someone agrees to pay if the one who owes can't pay, okay? Now, the principal will pay what's called a premium, right? We've heard the term insurance premium. Same term, right? It's the fee paid by the principal to the surety to enforce the contract. So the surety says, listen, I'm not going to guarantee anything for you until you what? Pay me something, right? We've got to put this thing in place. We're going to make this contract real. You owe me something, and that's a premium. That's a fee. Okay, now... Most surety bonds, sorry, I'm getting deep on this, all right? Most surety bonds have what's called a penal sum. I don't know that we use that term much today, but that's part of, these, of the bonding contract or the contract. Okay, the penal sum represents the maximum amount that the surety will pay under the surety bond. Okay, so the contract stipulates the penal sum, which says this is the maximum that the surety will have to pay, and no more. This is all that they're responsible for if the principal fails to pay the debt. All right, so you probably see where I'm going with this, all right? But this is just an earthly example of a heavenly reality, right? A spiritual reality. God is who? The obligee. Jesus is who? the surety or the guarantee, and we are the principal. Follow me so far? I think hopefully we get that right now. All right. We are indebted to God, and what do we owe him? What do we owe God? Our love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? We owe him our love. We owe him our worship. We owe him our, obe our obedience, right? We owe everything to him, right? We owe him our whole life because he gave us our life, right? And I think we all know that have we performed our obligation to God? Nope. None of us have, right? Remember, there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us have performed the obligation to God. So we've defaulted on the debt, right? We have not been able to perform the work that we were told to do, or the, the work that was, that was required of us, right? Jesus is the surety who promised to pay the debt that we owe because we have defaulted. We're unable to pay. And what do we owe Jesus? I guess I'm preaching. I can't ask, I can't ask questions, right? Um, we owe Jesus, right? What do we owe Jesus? We owe Jesus faith. We owe Jesus our faith, right, in believing that his promise that he's paid our debt. Right? We owe Jesus faith. All right. What? I'm asking a lot of questions here. What is the penal sum or the maximum amount that the surety will pay? So if Jesus is the surety, what's the maximum amount that he'll pay? All of it all of it. And we don't know what that amount is because it's all of it. All of our sin debt. All of it. Think about that. There's no cap on what he will pay because he paid for all of it. Alright, it gets even better. Okay, so this is, not, this is not the end. You might be wanting it to be the end, but it's not the end yet. Alright, I remember I said in the business world, right, in, in, our, in our worldly way of things, I said that with surety bonds, the surety does not ever expect to pay on the promise. They don't want to pay on the promise. They just want to collect the premium, right? And why is that? It's because the surety, 
If you're a surety or you work for a surety company who gives surety bonds, you investigate the financials of the principal and heavily vet the principal's ability to pay the debt so that you don't have to because it could be a large, large sum of money, like multi-millions of dollars in money. And it comes, in, in order to get a surety bond from a surety, it is a very, very strict uh, financial qualification. All right? And the surety wants to collect the premium. They want the money, but they never want to pro, pro, uh, pay on the principal's default. Right? In other words, it's 100% profit. If they can vet the principal, if the surety can vet the principal well enough and investigate all their financials and make sure that this principal is financially sound, they will never pay a dime and they will make 100% profit. Every dollar they bring in, they will never pay out. That is what they anticipate. Now, obviously, we don't live in a perfect world, so sureties end up paying, which is why they're there. But the expectation is, is that the surety never pays. Now, remember what we said or what we read in Proverbs, okay? Proverbs 17, 18, a man is devoid of understanding, right? If he shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. And then 22, 6, 22, 26, do not be one of those who shakes his hand in a pledge or one of those who is surety for debts. Proverbs 6, 1, he who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but he who hates being a surety is secure. Right? We see Jesus being a surety for friends and strangers. And did he suffer? Most definitely. Most definitely, right? Proverbs gives the warning. But oh, right, 1 Corinthians 1 is so clear and it rings so true. The wisdom or the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Because when we understand that Christ is our surety or the guarantee to pay our debt, we understand that he paid it in full before we even knew that we had a debt to pay. Think about that. It's amazing to think about. In other words, before we were ever indebted to him, he had already paid the debt. He paid it before our entire existence. The debt was paid before we ever existed. And he's still paying the debt for untold millions who have, who have never yet been indebted to him. That is amazing. That is absolutely astounding. That God, Jesus, is our surety and there's no limit, there's no cap because the debt is still being paid for millions upon millions of people who have yet to be indebted to him. Right? As Pastor Curtis said before, all of our sins were in the future when Christ died. And he made the payment to take away sin and made forgiveness possible before we ever sinned. That is, we have an awesome Savior. We have an awesome Savior. So let's reread. Let's reread this passage. Hebrews 7.22 in a new light. By so much more, so much more. Jesus has become a surety of a, of the, of a better covenant, right? He's become the guarantee of a better promise. Jesus has become the surety of a better contract, a better agreement. And that better agreement is all for us. Every bit of it's for us. So I want to end these two things. One, you may ask a legitimate question. How could one man suffer how could one man suffer on a cross for a few short hours and save untold millions from an eternity in hell and pay for all their sin? How's that possible? How can Jesus only suffer for a few hours on a cross and pay for multitudes of, multitude millions of people for their eternity in hell? And it's this. Because that one man, Jesus Christ, is, far, is of far more worth and of far more value than all the others combined. And his payment was more than sufficient to satisfy the debt for sin. Does that make sense? Jesus is of far more worth than everything else in the universe. And so he can die on a cross and save untold millions. Because he's worth far more than they are. <laughs> Lastly, 
I want to end with this because I think it's a valid question. I really, I think about this at times. If you could have everything that you've ever wanted, I mean everything, I mean everything you've ever wanted, the house you've always dreamed of, the car or cars that you've always wanted to drive, all the, all, all the, ever, all the good food that you've ever enjoyed, all the leisure or pleasure activities that you desire, all the, the person that you've wanted to be married to. Maybe some of you aren't married to the person you want to be married to. I hope not. But maybe, right, you want to be married to someone else or the person you've always desired to be married to. You want no more pain, no more suffering, no more old age. Think about it. If you could have everything that you've ever, ever wanted, would that be heaven to you if Jesus Christ were not there? That is what we have to think about. If it would be, then it's idolatry. Right? And I'm, I'm, I know I'm preaching at you, but this, this is directly applicable to me. Right? As true believers, we must remember, myself included, that Jesus Christ is everything to us. Jesus is not just all that we need. He is all that we have. Heaven will only be heaven because Jesus Christ is there. We see in a glass dimly, but we will see face to face. I just want you to just rest upon that, right? Love for the world does not mean that we love God. When we love the world, it means that we love God less. If you can have everything that you've ever wanted, would that be heaven for you if Christ was not there? I hope, I hope, that this has maybe stirred up and caused you to remember and bring you to a more earnest love for our Savior than for the world, right? And that we love him more today than we did yesterday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we come to you today and we thank you. Thank you so much for Christ as our Savior one who bore it all for us. Lord, may we cry out in our heart, hallelujah, what a Savior. Who would want to save any of us? And yet Christ, in absolute mercy and grace, came to do it and to pay all of it. Not stingy, not just a small percentage of it, but all of it. May we find that Christ is glorious and that we love him above all else. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.